Hello and welcome to From Beta Cells to Bicycles, the official podcast of the BC Diabetes Research Network. I'm Krista Lam, and today I'll be sharing my interview with Dr. Mary Jung. Dr. Jung is an associate professor at the School of Health and Exercise at the University of British Columbia. Her work studies the impact of exercise on diabetes. Before our interview starts, just a note that in the COVID times, we're doing all of our interviews remotely. So there may be a few small sound issues as everyone manages our new normal. Thanks for understanding. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jung. It's so great to have you on. Thank you very much, Krista. I'm glad to be on. So let's talk a little bit about your work. Why did you decide to go into diabetes research? I think it's always really interesting to start with why diabetes research? Right. And particularly for me, uh, diabetes prevention. And that kind of alludes to why I got interested in the first place. Um, We know that health behaviors like diet and exercise can improve chronic disease conditions, the outcomes, um, even the prevalence. And here's a disease where uh, so many people are affected and for 90 to approximately 95% of people living with diabetes, it's type two diabetes, which is um, by and large preventable. So having the opportunity to help so many millions of Canadians stave off this disease or um, potentially reverse it is very exciting to me. And so I get to use my education in health behavior change uh, and apply it in this population. It's, it's very exciting. Yeah, it would be. And especially because you're very focused on health and lifestyle. And is that something that's really your passion as well as something that you're excited about doing research with? Right, exactly. Yes, I, I think I'd be a hypocrite if I, if I wasn't, um, I, you know, starting from my undergrad in kinesiology and as a personal trainer and fitness instructor and yoga instructor, like it, it did naturally merge my interests um, for myself as well as, um, you know, my part-time jobs and, and my schooling taught me, hey, you can actually help people adhere if you know the evidence behind it, the theoretical principles that make people tick and do what they want to do, not what they should do. And, uh, you know, all of these facets, we know psychology is so integral to, to actual volitional behavior in humans. And I think it's really interesting. I've talked to researchers in the past about how sometimes people with type 2 diabetes, they get really nervous when they hear that someone's looking at exercise in particular. And so what do you tell people when you're talking about the fact that, you know, you may be a fitness expert and you may be a yoga instructor and a personal trainer and there's all these amazing things, but they don't have to be quite that fit. No, absolutely. And I think there's so much stigma and that's led us into a widespread problem in the first place is that we should people a lot. Um, We judge, we stereotype and all of this negatively affects motivation at the individual level. Um, And so um, getting away from um, the suggesting that there's it's got to be hard or it's not going to work. Or if you're not regimented, you know, then like the whole world's going to blow up. Like, of course not. Right. Um, even the way I titled my program um, for diabetes prevention, small steps for big changes was very purposeful to really get across the message right from the beginning that small components each day will make a massive difference in health um, and well-being. 
Yeah, and I loved looking into that program because I think there's so much to be said for the idea that change can be incremental. You know, you can take a small step and maybe today you walk for 10 minutes and maybe in, you know, six weeks you walk a 10K. But whatever you're doing, just getting that start can really help you to move forward. So is that sort of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And even more integral is the steps before the first 10 minute walk. So getting mentally ready, if you will, and beginning to set commitment goals on, you know, this is the time in my life where I am ready, or here's what I'm going to devote, you know, 10 minutes of my day today to really think about what options I have and what I'm open to doing. Um, what my diet am I absolutely not willing to change and what my diet am I curious about, you know, and, and those pieces um, we also find lead to longer lasting behavioral changes. Yeah. And I think that's really true. I know people who have often said, I'm not really ready to train for a marathon. I'm not really ready to go to a class and be in front of a lot of people. But if you gave me something really small to start with, I would probably be okay with trying that. And so I loved that about this program. Like there's little things you can do to get yourself ready and also to move yourself forward in a positive direction. Absolutely. We have a lot of um, wonderful clients we have the opportunity to work with and they'll say, I'm not giving up my jube jube. So like, you know, the first meeting is like, don't tell me I am to give because I won't and it's like we're not giving we're not telling you to give up YouTube whatever that is right we all have and probably more than one right thing where it's like no this is where I draw the line I'm not willing to move that and um, I love that people feel comfortable sharing those with us because then we know like okay what areas are you open to and it's and for our program it's always about what the individual wants um, we meet them and empower them. So for some, for usually they have just as many ideas where they're open to maybe making some modifications as they do for things that they don't want to touch. And that's great. Which is also, I think, a really great thing to tell people because there is often this fear that you're going to have no pleasures left in life when you start making these changes. Whereas it's really just about not having all the pleasures in life, maybe, but finding the things that are really important to you. Yeah. And finding new pleasures. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. <laughs> I know. And I really was interested in your work in particular, because as someone who was a runner for years, was injured, and then now is trying to figure out, okay, where do, what do I do? How do I get back into being active now that, you know, healing the injury? The small incremental steps, even for someone who used to be really active, that is a really good piece of advice, because there's that instinct that you have to go out there and run that 10K, even though you probably shouldn't. Yes. Yeah. It's really important, especially people, um, why an injury tends to be a barrier is that, and it lasts so long is that people want to go back to exactly the time that they ran the 5k three, five years ago, when in reality, that's going to make them more prone to another injury, you know? And so making it be okay that we have these, these smaller incremental steps and really valuing them and um, honoring that, you know, you have put yourself out there, you've tried hard. Those are key pieces to um, getting back on the saddle. And I like also that you talk about barriers, because I think that sometimes there's things in your life that prevent you from doing uh, the activity or eating the way you want. I mean, for many people, it's really difficult to find time or energy for fitness. Maybe you're a single parent. Maybe you don't live in a community where you have access to walkable spaces. Maybe you just you know, don't have access to healthy foods. So can you tell me a little bit about how your work is dealing with some of those barriers? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And first, you know, you listed um, some really common ones we hear. Um, first off was we, we value those and we are non-judgmental. Uh, somebody's barrier is a true and real barrier and that's it. Like there's no questioning. Well, yeah, you should be able to, you know, no, that's, um, that's absolutely not what we do. Really letting uh, the person know that we hear them and that's a barrier just like a food they don't want to get rid of that's something we don't touch if um we can work see if we can work on, on other aspects that will help individuals and also being sensitive to um, what they're not willing to share with us so yeah we're not going to give recipes uh for kale chips when kale costs five bucks a bunch and it's 10 calories and it's not going to fill up a family um, so we're really sensitive to socioeconomic potential barriers um, and also cultural differences, as well as, like you mentioned, rurality is a, is a big thing. And so it, it comes back to this, I know I've already said it, but it really does come back to where are you ready to start right now? What are some things that you feel you could do? Um, and so we work with each person to brainstorm what is possible, and we don't start with the um, a pre list, right? So, um, if they say walking outside, then we know, okay, it's a community that's to that. When do you think would be a good time to do that for you? Right. And, and work that way. Um, rather than you should try walking outdoors as well as indoors. Or have you tried buying a, um, you know, fitness device because that can help, right? Not everyone has the means to do so or buy a fitness membership, like you said. Absolutely. I did also want to talk a little bit about your work on high intensity interval workouts, which is a very different topic, but I think it also kind of leads into this because if you're someone who is not an exercise person, um, that might not be the research for you. Um, However, it's a really, really effective form of exercise and fast, which I'm a fan of. So why did you also want to look into that? Yeah. And why do I incorporate it into small steps for big changes? Um, Yeah, they they overlap. And, um, you know, I I certainly got involved in it because of um, the where I was doing my training, there is a really big exercise physiology lab doing a lot of the um, beginning work to low volume, high intensity interval training workouts. And um, from a psychological perspective, that hadn't been studied yet. So it was really neat to see. We have this knee jerk reaction, assuming that people will hate it, but do you really hate it? It's actually the first study that I did within HIT was with patients who had type two diabetes, were obese and um, had been sedentary for a long time. So it's a really nice check to go, okay, we assume that it's going to be too hard, but is it too hard? And um, lo and behold, (laughs) it's not as aversive as people think um, for people living with or at risk for type 2 diabetes. And and that kind of got me interested because yes, there's the speed of it too, but more from my perspective, there's that motivational piece that if you can see and feel a change in your body, it's very encouraging to continue on with that change. And so if you can feel like it's easier going up a flight of stairs, or perhaps you've witnessed your blood glucose levels that are decreasing, um, which might happen more quickly with doing HIT than other less intense forms of exercise, that will be the motivating factor to get you going next month 
or keep you going next month, right? So right now we give it as an option um, along with more continuous, moderate intensity type exercise and say, hey, we're going to encourage you to try both. And then you choose based on what works best for you. At the end of the day, it's always going to be a choice for people. And if we give them a smorgasbord menu of options, um, then hopefully they'll find something that works best for them. Yeah. And I've always felt that HIT just needed a branding overview, like overhaul, because anytime you have a high intensity interval training, it just sounds like it's going to be really hard, but it can actually be really fun. And it's something that I think uh, if people do try it, they will enjoy it. And like I said, it's a little bit faster. So some of us, you know, like to get our are impacting quickly. So something to consider. So where, what are the next steps? Where are you going next with your research? What do you think you would like to do in the next few years? Yeah, well, we've shown really strong efficacy in the lab and effectiveness in the community. And our community work's been going on for three and a half years now. And so we're going to ready now uh, to scale up, to expand into other regions. And uh, what we're doing right now is uh, making our program virtual and the training for delivering that program virtual as well. And that means that we don't just ask, you know, any Joe Blow walking down the street or any fitness trainer in any organization to deliver a program. We actually have um, a training certification process where we tested that it helps people develop the counseling skills that they actually need to help Um, individuals with prediabetes. So that's exciting work. Stay tuned. Um, I'm possibly most proud of the hard work we're doing to ensure um, equity, diversion, and um, inclusion in our research. So everything from cultural safety training that we've embedded in our train-the-trainer modules to um, ensuring that the spaces where we uh, want to attract people who are at risk for type 2 diabetes are inclusive and welcoming um, to who is training, like people who are training um, to the bricks and mortar buildings that the the place is offered in. So um, lots of work, but possibly the most rewarding. And I think it's wonderful that you bring that up because so much of the research world, we don't always think about inclusivity and about all of those things. And there's been so much work being done in the last little while to change that, to sort of have this intersectionality, which is like looking at the whole person and their circumstances and not just as, you know, research subject A has diabetes. So I think those are wonderful things. So really great to hear that you're doing more of that. Thank you. Yes. Stay tuned. (laughs) Wonderful. So we're going to wrap up with the last question, which I asked most people, which is how has being part of the BC Diabetes Research Network been a positive for you? How has it helped you? Oh, it's been um, fantastic. I'm going to go right away to my students. It allows us to be exposed to all other components of research within the diabetes spectrum, but also exposure for behavior change scientists to be able to share with people who um, might be working in wet labs, for example, on the importance of um, human connection, interaction, and delivering a program or for physiologists to see, um, you know, this program makes me feel this way. This one is not so motivating. This one is that kind of thing. Um, So I think it helps me personally be a better mentor by increasing my students' exposure to all different types of diabetes research. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Jung, for joining us on the show today. It was wonderful to talk to you about all of this, and I look forward to hearing more about your research as it moves forward. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to From Beta Cells to Bicycles, a podcast from the BC Diabetes Research Network. If you'd like more information on the network, visit diabetesbc.ca. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you can learn about even more of the diabetes research being done here in British Columbia. Thanks for listening.